In your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. First Peter 1 Peter 1.22, here now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which, by the gospel, is preached unto you. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. (coughs) Our introductory quotation today is from the Reverend Henry Scudder, The Christian's Daily Walk. If you have not taken time to peruse that work, uh, I can commend it to you. Henry Scudder writes, But it will be said, The Spirit bloweth where it listeth. How is it possible for any man by any means to get it. In respect of man's own ability, it is as impossible for him to obtain the divine spirit to dwell and work in his heart. Thus, if men will wait in the use of means wherein and whereby God doth give and continue his Holy Spirit to men, they may hope to enjoy this unspeakable blessing. The first means to get the spirit is humility. To be sensible of the loss of that which once you had in Adam. You must mourn and hunger and thirst after the Spirit. If you will do thus, you may hope to receive the Spirit. For God saith that he will pour water upon him that is thirsty. I will pour my Spirit upon thy seed, saith he to the church. That your heart may be stirred up to long for the Spirit. You must know that there is a Holy Ghost, and not only so, but you must know Him to be God. You must believe Him to be the Comforter, and give Him this honor and glory, as to believe in Him, and conceive of Him as the proper author of sanctification and comfort. This is the way to have the Spirit, and to be sure of it, that you have it. Ooh, that's really good. So notice that in this passage that we just read here in verse 22, it says you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Uh, Let's go ahead and do a bit of review first, but to broadcast what we're going to be looking at today, we're going to look at a mini-theology of the Spirit of God. Uh, Through the Spirit here, what does that mean? What is the Spirit done for us and we're going to do that in the ways that the spirit of god is identified to us in scripture what is he called what are his titles what are his works how does he make how does the spirit of god make himself known to us we're going to study that so that we would be induced as mr scudder says to long for that 
free spirit of God. Okay? So, but before that, let's talk about our review since it's been two weeks since we've been in this passage. Um, as we moved on to verses 22 through 25 the last time, we saw that there is such a thing as obedience to the truth, scripturally speaking, and that we might note that moral teaching is sound doctrine. Whereas Christians in our day and age are want to separate those things uh, into moral teaching on the one hand and sound doctrine on the other, or that we obey commands and not the truth. <laughs> Actually, the Bible says we obey the truth, right? And that moral teaching is sound doctrine, right? All of that is true. We want to bring together in our minds the entirety of the scripture to talk about what our Westminster catechisms tell us when they say, what is the... Uh, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the larger and the shorter catechism, same answer. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That's what the scriptures teach. And so it is not a, um, can, I say this, can I say it this way? It is not an untenable thing to preach from scripture, the Christian's duty, as well as the duty that we have to believe the truth. And we said, uh, in order to help us understand that, we said it this way, that it is as much of a sin to rob a bank as it is to believe something incorrectly from the scripture. It's also a sin to disbelieve what the Bible says or to misbelieve what the Bible says. Right? So, some untruths that are believed are damning mistakes. Right? Jesus will say, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And so all conceptions of Christ that draw back from making him the eternal God mean that if one believes those things, they will die in their sins. You can fall that far in simple doctrinal belief. Okay, so that was uh, what, what we said the last time. And then we also spoke of purity of soul. Purity of soul. It says that ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. What is a purified soul? Well, we said it wasn't a perfect soul, did we? didn't we? That's right. A purified soul is not a perfect soul. Um, in Acts chapter 15 and verse 9, Peter will testify to the Jerusalem council that when he was with Cornelius, the Holy Ghost fell upon, them, upon Cornelius and his house as it did upon the Jews at the first. And he will say that what, the, what happened was, actually I think this is James that recounts this, that Simon spoke about God purifying the hearts of the Gentiles by faith. Their hearts were purified by faith. We will see, we will see in, in Hebrews, won't we, that our hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience. Right? And so there is a work of purity that the Lord brings. And the other thing that we wanted to make note of last week was that this comes by word and spirit. And we're going to see that in this passage so very clearly as we move forward. That the work of God in our hearts is indeed a work of his word and spirit. You have purified your hearts in what? Obeying the truth by the spirit. 
You see that? We can't separate these, beloved. And very often in Scripture, what do we see? Or sorry, not in Scripture. Very often in practice, what do we see? We see that there are systems that identify themselves as Christian that separate the, the, what they call the letter and the spirit. Really what they're separating is knowledge from feeling. That's what they think they're doing. And actually what they're doing is they're separating truth and error. Right? Not in the right way. They will say, oh, you Reformed Presbyterians, you're much too intellectual. And haven't you even heard this perhaps from Reformed circles from time to time? Oh, well, we have a lot to learn from the enthusiasts, from the charismatics. Really? Let us raise our eyebrows at that. Really? What do we have to learn? Well, you know, they're so much more sensitive to the spirit. Well, I might respond, they are sensitive to a spirit. But it may not be the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to broad brush all of my charismatic brethren like that. I would never do that. But notice what it says here. That when the spirit and the word congeal together, there is obedience to the truth. It is not, quote, by the spirit that you jettison the truth. If you have the Spirit of God, you are embracing and obeying the truth. And that's the point we're making. We don't obey the truth without the Spirit of God. Even our obedience is filthy rags without the Spirit. Oh, beloved, we cannot separate the Word and Spirit. The Bible always draws them together. Especially in this passage, uh, Peter will say that we believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. We have purified our souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. And then he will say, we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. We're born again by the Word? Well, that's not what Peter said earlier. A moment ago he said, you've obeyed the truth by the Spirit. Jesus will say in John chapter 3 that you are born of the Spirit. Except a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. James will say of the Father, of his own will, he begat us by the word of truth. Well, the Bible speaks then of the people of God being born again by the Spirit of God and born again by the word of God. Which is it, Pastor? It's both. It is always both. It always will be both. And so this becomes very clear in this passage and in other passages where we look at John chapter 3 and, and then also in uh, James chapter uh, 1 verse 18 of his own will he begat us with the word of truth and so on. James will also tell us and this is where those means come in he will say, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and weep and mourn. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Isn't that exactly what Mr. Scudder just said? The first step to receiving the Spirit is to humble yourselves. And why is that? Because as Mr. Scudder related from Isaiah 44, because 
Water is only poured on those who are thirsty. The physician only comes to the sick. Right? Well, these are wonderful things to think about. Of course, this hungering and this thirsting and this recognition of our own illness or spiritual sickness, that is also the work of the Spirit of God. So all of those things contained in what we said last week. This week, what I'd like to do is I'd like to move on and talk about the Spirit of God himself and remember what the Spirit of God does and who he is and how we can perhaps focus (laughs) rightly on the Spirit of God. Often we hear if you focus on the Spirit of God, what's going to happen is you're going to speak in tongues. You're going to do miraculous things, right? You're going to have gifts of healing and other such things. And beloved, let's just say at the outset here that the Presbyterian church historically has been a cessationist church, right? The EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church aside, because they're not cessationist. Historically, the Presbyterian church has been a cessationist church. And what we mean by that is that the work of the Spirit today does not include a regular office where powers or signs are exhibited. The speaking in tongues, miraculous languages that no one has ever learned, that is not for today. The standing up and speaking the word of the Lord in such a way that it is immediately inspired and not something in or drawn out of the written word of God, that doesn't exist today. One pastor has said that if we would exact the penalties of false prophecy in the Old Testament that are, that are written down there, we would have less false prophets today. Certainly, numerically, we would have less because the penalty was death. And beyond that, fearing that penalty, many who call themselves prophets today would not be those prophets. Beloved, we confess that there are five teaching offices in the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And in those five offices, three of them were extraordinary. And two of them are ordinary. The apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, they are no more. Billy Graham and his son notwithstanding. They're not evangelists in the sense of the first century. They may be itinerant preachers. And there is a place in scripture for itinerant preachers under the supervision of a presbytery. That's true. Paul was an itinerant preacher. Timothy, Philip, itinerant preachers. Titus, itinerant preachers. But if we look at the office of evangelist in scripture, we find very little, quote, evangelism and a lot of apostolic work that is being done as the errand men of the apostles carrying apostolic errands and authority to do things in the church. When the apostles passed away in that first generation, so did the evangelists and so did those inspired prophets. We have sealed up The word of God. And of course everybody knows this. Don't they? You say well no they don't. They have evangelists and prophets. And even apostles in some churches. And yet no one treats them. Like an apostle. Or a prophet. 
or an evangelist. No one is writing down their letters and then putting Revelation 23 in the Bible or Acts 29. No one is doing that. Why? Because it is recognized, isn't it, that they're not really what they claim to be. So, beloved, there is a ministry of the Spirit today, and that ministry is a miraculous ministry in a sense. And I do want to talk with you about that because there is much confusion. Every time the Spirit who blows where he wills, that's what Mr. Scudder meant, and that's what the authorized version means when it translates the words of Christ as the Spirit bloweth where he listeth, where he listeth, where he desires. That is, he is a sovereign spirit. He cannot be called down. He cannot be commanded. He cannot be told what to do. Why? Because the third person of the Trinity, while you may have heard in time past that he is a gentleman and he will go nowhere he is invited, actually he goes everywhere he wants and nowhere else. He blows where he, where he desires, where he lists. Let's turn to John chapter 3 and take a look at that for a moment. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born Jesus answered verily verily I say unto thee except a man be born of water and of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit marvel not that I said unto thee ye must be born again the wind bloweth where it listeth and thou hearest the sound thereof but canst not tell whence it cometh And whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Fascinating interchange between a leader of the church in that day and the king of the church. Right? So, Jesus is entertained or he is, uh, he is visited by Nicodemus and he says, Rabbi, we, we Pharisees, we religious intelligentsia, we leaders of the church, we're going to have to admit that you are a rabbi. You're a teacher. You're a great one. That's the word. That's what the word rabbi means. Rav in scripture means great. Ravi means my great one. Okay. And you'll remember the intensification of that in the garden when Mary looks upon Christ and she says, Ravoni, my master. Right? She recognizes the risen Christ there. Okay, so what is being said here? 
all of the Pharisees, I mean, it was their job, wasn't it? To validate whether or not a man was in the ministry or not. That was their job. They had a rightful, theirs was the, the, um, the church to administer, right? The Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Do what they tell you. They have a real ecclesiastical authority. Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. No one can do the miracles that you do, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. <coughs> Nicodemus will answer very carnally, won't he? What? Okay, what? what yeah, we're going to be we're going to enter a second time into our mother's womb. What? What are you talking about being born again? And you know what Jesus does there? He draws him out to an admission that he doesn't know what it is to have a new heart. That old Pharisee had not yet received his new heart. And Jesus draws him out into that admission that he had not received it. What a what a wonderful admission that was. Later on, will we not see Nicodemus rising up in defense of Christ in his ministry? He didn't remain ignorant for long, did he? So Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And I think water and spirit are the same thing there. And he's drawing together Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water upon you. I will put a new spirit in you. This is what baptism points to, right? We've, we've said this before. Our Baptist, our beloved Baptist friends, much as we love them, they tell us that, that the sign of baptism is immersion followed by immersion. They won't say it that way, but don't you have to follow it with immersion? Yeah, you do. That's right. And they'll say it's like being, you know, being buried with Christ and being raised again with Christ. But that's not the spiritual sign. The spiritual sign is the sign of the receiving of the Spirit of God. I will pour my spirit out. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. Right? And so Jesus will say, you must be born of water and of the Spirit. You must have that interior sprinkling of the heart, that clean water. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your iniquities. A new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will put within you a heart of flesh and cause you to walk in my statutes and judgments. That's Ezekiel 35, uh, sorry, 36, 25, 26, and 27. And he's pointing the master in Israel Nicodemus to Ezekiel 36. And so that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit, that is, and notice he doesn't say water here, he just says spirit, because water goes with the spirit, that's the metaphor, is spirit. You can be born of your mother, Nicodemus, but not be born again. It's not a second time in your mother's womb. It's being born of the spirit, he will say. Marvel not that I said unto thee, one, ye Pharisees must be born again. The wind bloweth. And notice that the word here, wind, is the same word that's translated spirit. The spirit bloweth where he listeth. 
and thou thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And what Jesus is doing is he's putting regeneration in its proper spiritual context. Nicodemus, you thought that all of the Jews were regenerated. You thought you Pharisees had the Spirit. Oh, Nicodemus, no. He blows where he wills. You, you can sort of hear where he's been. You can see the trees rustling. But you don't see the Spirit in that way. You don't have that kind of antenna. That kind of sensory apparatus. He blows where he wills. You must come to him. And he must come to you. And so Nicodemus, when he hears that, he'll say, Oh man, how can these things be? How can we Pharisees have missed it so badly? Beloved, I don't want you to miss it. Your pastor's heart doesn't want you to miss it. If the Pharisee Nicodemus can be confused about his spiritual state, any of us can, including me. The spirit blows where he wills. He is a sovereign spirit. And so all these folks who stand up without the word and claiming to have the Spirit and are commanding the Holy Spirit to do this or that. Beloved, they're hopelessly lost. That is not Christian. Our God is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Godhead does What the Godhead wants. He is sovereign. And we must learn then. In his condescension to us. To align ourselves with him. Not the other way around. That he must align to us. So the reason that the spirit and the word go together in scripture. Why is that? Why is that so carefully laid out for us? Well, it's obvious because the the Spirit is the author of the Word. Why would the Spirit and the Word be somehow contrary or not complementary and building one upon another when it is the Spirit of God that is the author of Scripture? Right? In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Peter is talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. And what did Peter see and hear that day? Let's remember. Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain with Christ. Matthew chapter 17 is the passage. You can look it up later. They saw some things and they heard some things. The first thing they saw was Jesus' robe became white as one of the, uh, I think it's, it's either Luke or Mark, as no fuller could white it. That is, ladies, it was bleached white Uh, whiter than any bleach can make it. Okay, and here we have another tradesman for a last name, Fuller, right? And so then, they also saw Moses and Elijah. Now, how they knew they were Moses and Elijah was either from their conversation between Christ and Moses and Elijah, 
or because it was simply revealed to them immediately by the word of God in that visionary estate. We don't know. It doesn't say. Jesus didn't turn to them and say, let me introduce you to my friends Moses and Elijah. I don't think that was said. I think they understood. And of course, that represents the, the, the prophetic office of the Old Testament. That's aligning the prophets with Christ, in other words. And so then also, they saw a cloud that overshadowed them, and they heard a voice come out of that cloud. Not only did they hear conversation between those three persons, but they also heard God the Father's voice come out of heaven in a very, I'm sure, uh, loud and awesome display where he said, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And this comes right after Peter's uh, losing his tongue and saying, look, Lord, there's three of you. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You can all stay here and you can be like this, like this, this, this threefold teaching to the church. Wouldn't that be great to have you and Moses and Elijah? This is just what we need. Let's have you guys abide here and do that. Not actually reckoning at that point that Moses and Elijah spake by the Spirit of Christ, which is what Peter will tell us also. And so that's when the cloud comes over and they are simply laid out flat, almost unconscious, if you will, and the cloud and God the Father says, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. They faint away, Jesus revives them. And when they revive, appropriately, they, they see none save Jesus only. Quite a day. Not your normal day in ancient Palestine. Peter says, this is the experience that we had. Now let's hear what he says as we go on. And this voice which came from heaven we heard... When we were with him in the holy mountain. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place. Until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first. That no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It's no wonder then that the apostles and prophets tell us to hear the Spirit and hear the Word. Because it's the Spirit that spoke the Word through the apostles and prophets. And it's no wonder then that we are born again by the Spirit and Word of God. Now we do not believe, like some Protestant groups do, that the Word of God has an intrinsic efficacy of its own. Sadly, many Presbyterians are confessing that these days. But that's because we have tended, we have drifted in our theological commitments toward Lutheranism and not toward Presbyterianism and a biblical understanding of things. The Lutheran Church has confessed since its inception that the Word has a particular efficacy of its, uh, of its own. And, it, and isn't, it, uh, isn't that certainly uh, uh, apparently or if a cursory reading of scripture might present that to someone. I mean, we don't want to be uh, hard on our, on our brethren over there. A cursory reading of scripture might tend to present that, that the word has an efficacy of its own, but it really doesn't. The efficacy is the word and spirit together. 
always has been, always will be. It is the, uh, the, the, the word of God that is made use of by the spirit of God in illumination, in instruction, in conviction, in bringing humility, in giving a new heart, and giving that word home in that new heart such that now it is understood, it is embraced, it is like we say in our, in our catechism, it is received with faith and love, laid up in our hearts and practiced in our lives. But that is by the spirit. The word doesn't have the power to do that by itself. But the spirit will not work apart from that word. He wrote it. And so he will make use of it. And so this puts to the lie then, doesn't it? All of those times where you've heard someone say, the spirit told me, and then go on to deny something, some scripture truth or other. These two cannot be at odds with one another. They must stand together if they rightly are understood. Okay? So we must be careful then. We must be careful not to take our implications, if you will, and quote, baptize them, or sorry, take our own inclinations and baptize them with the Spirit of God and say, the Spirit told me. Remember that the Spirit is going to use the Word of God to tell you. All right, so with that having been said, um, notice uh, a passage that we referenced earlier in 2 Samuel 23. And then after that, we'll turn to 1 Chronicles 28. 2 Samuel 23. Verse 1, now these be the last words of David. Okay, the last words of David. Did David have a lot to say throughout his life? Well, we we believe he wrote the bulk of the Psalms, don't we? The bulk of them. He was also influential uh, with regard to 1 and 2 Samuel. David had a lot to say, but these are the last words of David. David wants us to know something very, very important here, such that he has couched them with, these are my last words. Samuel will write them down here in 2 Samuel. We believe it might be Samuel. It may may have been another prophet in the college of prophets over which Samuel served as president. But still, now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said... The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God, and he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. What an amazing passage. Would any of you dare to rise up and to stand up and say, the Spirit of God spake by me and His word was in my tongue? We'd ask you if you'd run off your meds. Wouldn't we? David said that. He was self-aware in his prophetic aflatus, his prophetic gift. Notice also in Second Chronicles, Sorry, 1 Chronicles 28, 11. 
Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch and of the houses thereof and of the treasuries thereof and of the upper chambers thereof and of the uh, inner parlors thereof and the place of the mercy seat and the pattern of all that he had by the spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord and of all the chambers round about of the treasuries of the house of God and of the treasuries of the dedicated things also for the courses of the priests and the Levites and for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord and for all the vessels of service in the house of the Lord. He gave gold by weight for things of gold for all instruments of all manner of service. Silver also for all instruments of silver by weight for all instruments of every kind of service even the weight of the candlesticks of gold and for their lamps of gold by weight for every candlestick and for the lamps thereof, and for the candlesticks of silver by weight, both for the candlestick and also for the lamps thereof, according to the use of every candlestick. And by weight he gave gold for the tables of showbread for every table, and likewise the silver for the tables of silver. Also pure gold for the flesh hooks and the bowls and the cups, and for the golden basins he gave gold by weight for every basin, and likewise silver by weight for every basin of silver, and for the altar of incense refined gold by weight and gold for the pattern of the chariot of the cherubims that spread out their wings and covered the ark of the covenant all this said david the lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of this pattern wow we've been reading in moses we've seen the same thing haven't we the pattern and how was the pattern revealed by the spirit verse 12 the pattern of all he had by the spirit and then david augments that all this the the lord jehovah made me understand in writing by his hand upon me it's one of those instances where the spirit of god is called the jehovah god right so who is this spirit beloved who is he well, this sermon is only going to whet your appetite. Lord willing, in the weeks to follow, we'll be doing a, a mini theology of the Holy Spirit. He is the, the speaker of God's truth in that he is in the mouth of all of his prophets. He's in the mouth of his apostles. He's in the heart of David, in the heart of Moses, in the heart of Bezalel and Aholiab. To make up the worship of God. He is the, the one who has borne along, carried along the prophets of old. Such that while they spoke in their own style and diction. And even in some cases a different language than the Hebrew. The Aramaic in the case of Daniel. They spoke his word. He so overruled and superintended in their lives and in their thoughts such that they thought and wrote his words. It is a miracle ministry, isn't it? In weeks to follow, we will talk about the miracle, the extraordinary and providential preservation that God by his spirit has performed upon his word. So the word and spirit then must come together in our regeneration. 
It is indeed the spirit who blows where he wills. He is a sovereign spirit because he is that divine spirit. And he works with and by the word of God in our hearts with the preaching of the gospel. As Dr. Clark once said, a man can be converted to Christ during a sermon on the Trinity. Just make sure, brothers, that you're preaching the whole counsel of God. Let that sovereign spirit give him room to blow and to, and to move where he lists, where he desires. Preach the gospel. Talk about redemption. Talk about forgiveness of sin in Christ. But also talk about God triune. Talk about all of these other things and let the Lord move in that whole counsel upon his people. We cannot manufacture the movement of the Spirit. We cannot call Him down at our whim. We submit to His will in all things. So, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is said in John 1.9, is that one who lightens every man which comes into the world. Yet it is that same Lord Jesus Christ which is now gone into heaven. How does the Lord Jesus lighten every man that comes into the world? His mind encompasses all minds and he makes redemptive use of his spirit to take all things that are his, he will tell us, and bring them to us. Well, that's the introduction to the spirit of God. Let's spend a few more moments in, a, in these first couple of points. With regard to the person of the Spirit, that He is God Himself, we first want to understand the word Spirit. What is Spirit? What is Spirit as, as opposed to flesh? What is flesh? Flesh often in Scripture is set forth as this very interesting concept. It doesn't always mean this stuff, you know? It doesn't always mean that. It can mean something else. It can mean anything, even immaterial things that are corrupted. Right? Because flesh corrupts. These bodies, they break down. They get old. The, more I, the older I get, the more I realize that. The, the greater this truth comes searing home, if you will. Right? We are born... And we grow up into this flower of strength, right? The, the, the full bloom of that flower. But Peter, even Peter will admit in this passage that we're speaking about that the grass withers and the flower fades away. All flesh is as grass, he will say. Well, the Spirit of God is known as Spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? He is, and what do we mean by spirit? We mean that he is not subject to any of the corrupting influences of flesh. Whether those be corrupting influences immaterial or material. Immaterial or material. In other words, it is not enough to say simply that the spirit, because he's immaterial, is uncorrupted. Beloved, your human spirits are corrupted. And they are sometimes scripturally called flesh. Even though they're not flesh, they're spirit. Right? The word flesh is used equivocally, intentionally in scripture. To teach us what it means to be corrupted body and soul. Material and immaterial. 
The Spirit of God is called Spirit because He is completely clear like God Himself is. John 4, 24. God is Spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. He is completely free from all corruption. This is one of those negative attributes, right? He is incorruptible. Not time bound. He never passes away. Uh, those are the negations, right? No composition in him. He is unitary, top to bottom. I know that the simplicity of God is a doctrine that's come under attack these days. That's sad because it's, a, it's an attack upon the Godhead itself. If we think of God as something other than simple, if we think of him as composite in one way or another, remember that composition equals weakness. Composition equals weakness. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Here's what I mean. If you can conceive of something as being reducible, then whatever it is made up of in its constituent parts is indeed um, something different than itself, which means you don't have yet the final thing. The final thing is whatever is behind the composite to its component parts. Uh, I've used this illustration before. Some of you will remember it. Some of you not have, may not have heard it before. But scientism, and I call it scientism for a reason, is today searching for the, quote, God particle. Have you ever seen that in maybe scientific journals and other things that you've read, maybe in creation uh, journals and things like that? The God particle. Why, the, why is it called the God particle? Because it's the irreducible we used to think, oh, a molecule, that's irreducible. Nope, made up of constituent parts. We can break it up. Oh, okay, so now we have, you know, uh, atoms and, you know, things like that. We can't, okay, so certainly those are the irreducible particles. No, they're not irreducible. We can break them up too. Okay, well, then it's the proton, the neutron, the, the um, you know, the electron. And um, I, I know I'm dating myself with regard to, you know, uh, Newtonian science, but that's okay. Um, oh, well, those are the particles. No, there's not, because they, it can't be the God particle. Why? Because it's, number one, there's many of them, and number two, they can be reduced too. We can break them up into quarks, and then we can break them up into quantum uh, particles, and then we can break them up into energy, and then we can break energy down into, you see what they're doing, right? They're going further and further back, because anything that is composite can be broken apart. God is spirit, He's simple. That means it can't be broken apart, beloved. All of the differentiations that we, can, that we conceive about God are differenti differentiations for our, God's condescension to us and our understanding. Remember, I've told you before that all of the attributes of God interpenetrate one another so that God really only has one attribute, and that is Godhead. He cannot be broken up. He is the, the irreducible. That's what it means for God to be spirit. And that the Holy Spirit is called this in scripture. Taking that name to himself reminds us in that he is God himself, God the irreducible. He's also called spirit because he is invisible and his working is inscrutable. And this we talked about a moment ago when we were talking in John chapter 3. This is why Jesus uses that term, the wind or the spirit bloweth where he listeth. You hear the sound, 
You know, it's like the Lord told David, uh, you're going to hear the sound of the mulberry trees. When the wind blows those mulberry leaves, that's when you go down and attack. But only then. You won't see the wind blowing in. Sometimes you see things the wind is blowing. But the wind itself, it's not seen. Right? The Spirit is like that. He's not seen. He is pneuma. He is wind, breath. You don't really see it. What you see is His effects. So He is God the Spirit. He is God truly being God the Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit, which speaks of his separateness from all that is created in being, in his being and in his ethical holiness. And so he is holy in all of those ways. We see him, don't we, in the, in the creation, right? God said, let there be light. God said, we have the Father and the Word, let there be light. And notice it says that before that, that The Spirit of God was brooding, hovering, forming, gathering, working over the face of the deep. He's the creator as well. We will hear, won't we, that Jesus Christ is the creator. We'll hear, won't we, that God the Father is the creator. We'll hear also that the Spirit of God is the creator. He is that creator. He is called the Spirit of God because he is God himself. And in Acts chapter 5, 5, we hear that great statement of the Apostle Peter. How is it that you have conceived with your husband to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied unto men, you've lied unto God. And so we see the personality and Godhead of the Holy Spirit there. He is called the Spirit of Christ in Galatians 4, 6, 1 Peter 1, 11, and Romans 8, 9. Why would he be called the Spirit of Christ? Because of eternal procession. What does that mean, Pastor? It's highfalutin theology. Here's what you need to know about eternal procession or eternal spiration. That there are relationships within the Godhead. God looking upon himself. God interacting with himself. The three persons of the Trinity interacting with themselves For all eternity. One of those relationships we call filiation. That's just a highfalutin way of saying that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has always been the Son of God, the Father. That the Father's always been the Father, and the Son has always been the Son. And that God has uh, called His Son His only begotten. There's a uniqueness about Christ that not even the Spirit of God is a part of. Then we hear the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. Why is He called the Spirit of Christ as well as the Spirit of the Father in Scripture? So that we will know that the spiration or eternal procession of the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. And the main reason for that is so that we know God doesn't have two sons. There's a difference between the Spirit and the Son, between the second and the third person of the Trinity. If God generates or, or gives rise to or in some other way, if God the Father as the first person of the Trinity gives, uh, gives rise to two other subsistences or personalities in the same way, then he's got two sons. But he didn't do it that way. This 
this uh, necessary, essential act of the Godhead. In other words, it was not God the Father's choice to have a son or to have a spirit. It's part of what it means to be God. What did, what did the Godhead do in its opera ad intra, in its interrelation from all eternity? The son was filiated or the son was given sonship. And from all eternity, the spirit was given spirithood or spiration. Beyond that, there's very little we can say, beloved, except that the spiration comes from the Father and the Son. And this is a necessary act of the Godhead and also necessary for us to receive and embrace. And so those churches, and there are a number of them, that deny the filiation, sorry, the the procession of the spirit from the father and the son they have a trinitarian problem they have god having two sons and that makes for in its implications some odd theology that will not take up today so he is that good spirit speaking of his moral goodness he is the spirit of christ and he is the spirit of christ in these ways because of eternal spiration but also because he was the it was the spirit of christ that spoke the word of christ in the old testament peter will tell us this in first peter chapter one he's called the spirit of christ because christ as the archetypal human being was endued with the spirit above measure and so in that sense he's called the spirit of christ as well and he's called the spirit of christ because The Spirit spoke in old times of Christ and of his ministry. And then finally we said he is the creator. We'll have to stop there. Next week we'll take up not his opera ad intra, right? The the Spirit considered as the Spirit in the Godhead. But we'll take up the Spirit's redemptive works. And it will be, by the time we close our study, it will be impossible for us to say, or to exaggerate the ministry of the Spirit among the people of God redemptively. It will be impossible for us to exaggerate that. We wish to cry up the Spirit of God and to profess our love for Him. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for that good Spirit of Thine. And we pray as we have already today, that what has been spoken today, uh, he might take uh, as that proper uh, setting forth of thy word and usher it to our thoughts and give it home in our hearts, having purified our hearts by faith. We thank thee for that good spirit, that free spirit, that regenerating spirit. We thank thee for him who blows where he wills. And we ask, Lord, that as we heard from Rutherford, a couple of weeks back, back, as we are not able to cause the wind to blow, certainly, Lord, that we might yet be ready having our sails trimmed. That we might make use of all means at our disposal. That when the wind, when the Spirit blows, that it might not be uh, a mere idling of us, a mere flapping of the sails but that it would be a filling of them instead. We ask, Lord, cause the word of Christ to dwell in us richly,
that we should be filled with thy spirit and that whatever it is that we do, we might do all to thy glory. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.